Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. So take your copy of God's Word and find Genesis chapter 1, please. That should be pretty easy to find. Genesis chapter 1. And as you're finding that, let me point a couple things out to you. First of all, uh, this year on Veterans Day, we're going to try something a little new. This has been on my heart for some time, and I've been wanting to do this. But we're going to host a Veterans Day trap shoot and lunch. You know, we've got a great veterans community here at Crossgate Church. Of course, this event is not just for veterans. It's for anybody, men, women, it doesn't matter. Uh, whatever your background is, we'd love to have you come. It will be on Saturday, November the 11th, 9 a.m. at Mountain Valley Sportsman's Association. That's the shotgun and rifle range off of Mill Creek Road. Uh, many of y'all have been there before. And uh, we're just going to have a fun time. Uh, we're going to start at 9 o'clock. Uh, we're going to shoot a couple rounds of trap. We're going to have a catered lunch from Smokin' in Style Barbecue. I know for many of y'all, you feel like that's your favorite barbecue, certainly my favorite uh, in Hot Springs. And then I'm going to give a Veterans Day devotional. Again, it's not just for veterans, although I would love to have some veterans come out. We're going to have a few competitions among the branches, just honest competitions uh, among the uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. That said, uh, you can register for this event, and I need you to register in advance uh, at crossgate.org slash events. Uh, the cost for the event is $10 to shoot the two rounds of trap, and then lunch is $15. If somebody wants to just come out and hang out and be a spectator for the trap shoot and just eat lunch with us and stay for the devotional, that's fine too. Lunch, then again, is only $15 uh, for that. You can get more information about this event at crossgate.org events, or you can simply stop by Next Steps or uh, send me an email, because I am fired up about being there. Now, some of you guys are thinking, wait a minute, Pastor. You know November 11th is open day of rifle season, right? I ain't going to be there. That's okay. I, I'm going to pray that you go out and kill a big one on Saturday morning, and then you're right here for Sunday church. Amen? Right? So you go hunt on Saturday, and then you be in church, like God says, on Sunday, worshiping with the body of Christ. By the way, trap shoot and barbecue lunch will be an excellent Life Plus event for many of you. By now, I hope you know that Life Plus is our initiative for this fall going into December of how we want to reach and connect with our neighbors, our associates, people we don't know, certainly people that don't go to church. Uh, Life Plus is super simple. All you do is you do something fun that you enjoy and you invite people to come along, right? Whether you're out on the lake or you're in the woods or you're sitting there watching the Razorbacks play or whatever it may be. Maybe you're going shopping to Little Rock and you just want to invite somebody that you know from work or somebody from your neighborhood that, that you're not sure that they go to church. You're just trying to make a connection. We actually did a Life Plus event at my house just yesterday. Super, super easy. Shara made a pot of chili. Uh, the Razorbacks was on at 11. We invited our neighborhood to come over from 11 to 1 and uh, we put it out on our Facebook uh, page for our neighborhood. And we had about a dozen people at our house yesterday for, for chili. Uh, they brought some wonderful desserts and sides and so forth. Uh, most of those people, I'd say eight of those people we already knew from previous neighborhood hangouts because we, as, as many of you remember, we did neighborhood hangouts last year. Now we're calling it Life Plus, but it's the same concept. Uh, but we had about 12 people over. Two of those families we did not know. So that was a huge win, right? A huge win simply to get to know some people in our neighborhood. And uh, it was a real blessing. So Life Plus, it's very simple. Figure out what you're going to do. 
put it on the calendar. Again, this is not necessarily a life group function. Those people already go to church, right? You're, you're, you're focusing on people that don't go to church, people that you're not even sure if they're Christians or not, saved or not. And you're just inviting them in. You're not inviting them in for a Bible study. You're not inviting them in for, uh, you know, to preach at them or whatever, or even necessarily to invite them to church on the spot. You're just there to connect and get to know people better and then allow God to use that beyond that one particular event. What you do for Life Plus is once you're done with your event, go to the display out in the mall area, get yourself one of these little footballs, and write down the details of your event, your name, what you did, when you did it, and then just put it in the cooler out there, as I will do with this football after this service. And then in December, when we close out Life Plus, Pastor Keith is going to do a drawing based on the footballs that are in that cooler, and the winners will receive some prizes. It's just that simple. Let me tell you something, friends. Life Plus, and even what we called Neighborhood Hangouts last year, these things work. They absolutely work when you do them. Last summer, we had people get saved from initial uh, Neighborhood Hangout Connections. We had people baptized from initial Neighborhood Hangout Connections. We had people unite with our church and membership going forward to make more and better disciples, all because someone invited them to come in. And they were looking for a way to get in to somebody else's life. These work when you do them. I will tell you, we did not have as many neighborhood hangouts last summer as I, as I quite honestly thought we would. In a church of 600 people, I think we had about eight people that did neighborhood hangouts. We can do better. And I'm challenging you and, and lovingly encouraging you to pray about a neighborhood hangout, Life Plus, whatever you want to call it, and, and invite some people in to whatever it is that you're doing, okay? And just enjoy the fact that God is going to use that in the process to bring some people to Jesus and to bring some people to unite with our church. And I would love to see your football in the cooler by December. Now, this morning, we are continuing our teaching series called We Believe. It's a simple series going through the basics of the Christian faith in the months of October and November. And today, our topic is this, the doctrine of humanity. The doctrine of humanity. And of course, we're going to unpack these things in Genesis 1 through 3 in just a moment. But let me show you a single verse in the Bible that in many ways sums up the doctrine of humanity. Look at this in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. God made men and women upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now that's interesting. Look at the first part of it. It says, God made men and women upright. Now, in your notes, write down Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 uses this exact same word, upright, to describe God in his sinless perfection. It says that God is upright, without iniquity. Why in the world would that word be used here to describe how God made men and women? Well, because it's obvious, isn't it? When God made the very first two human beings, he made them in sinless innocence and perfection, that they, that they have a relationship with God. And yet, the verse also says, but they have sought out many schemes. There's a dark side to humanity that we must talk about today along two lines, the first of which is simply this, and I want to I keep this very simple, okay? The first of which is this. Humanity was made in the image of God. Get that down in your little handout there, or if you're using the electronic version, either way. Humanity was made in the image of God. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image 
and our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Very good. That's Genesis 1. Now let's continue in Genesis 2 for additional perspective. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. There's some things I want you to see in this passage, or a couple of passages that we read from, from chapters 1 and 2. Specifically talking about that we, humanity, we have been made in the image of God. Okay, here's the first thing. We are created in God's image. That's kind of goes without saying since we just read that, but, but we're going to unpack this. What exactly does it mean we are created in God's image? So to be created in the image of God, the, the word really means reflection. We, we are a reflection. Certainly, the first two human beings were a, were a reflection of God. In a very real way. Now I got it. Jesus Christ will, is the only perfect reflection in, in totality of God, right? And this is not in the notes, but write down Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where it says Jesus, or should it say, it says he is the image of the invisible God. But nevertheless, the first two human beings were, in a very real and tangible way, reflections in the image of God. It's an amazing thing. But here's something else when we talk about image. It also means that there's a capacity for relationship with God. There's a capacity for those who are made in the image of God, and that's exclusively human beings out of the entire created order. There is a capacity for relationship with God. Uh, I, one of the resources I've shared with you in the past that would be a, a good thing for you to pick up is this workbook called The Baptist Faith and Message. This is a... Um, a little companion to the actual Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which happens to be our statement of faith at Crossgate Church. If you haven't had a chance to look at that, I would encourage you to go to our website under Beliefs, and we have the entire Baptist Faith and Message 2000 there for you to review and understand exactly what we believe. This is a companion workbook that helps you to, to walk through that and to better understand what we believe. But here's a quote about this image of God piece. This is from the workbook. Being made in God's image means that we possess a spiritual capacity that makes us moral creatures who can know and worship God. Though all creation declares God's glory, only humans have a moral consciousness and the ability to know God. What that tells me is that those first two human beings not only had the capacity 
for a relationship with God because they were made in God's image. They, in fact, did have a relationship with God. God was in the garden. The man and the woman were in the garden. There there, there was a communion there, the likes of which this world has never known since then with God in a very real and tangible way. That's an incredible thing. And that that was God's design from the beginning to have this communion, this, this intimate proximity to God. But here's another thing that Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. Second thing is this. We are created male and female. We are created male and female. Now, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that did not even need an explanation. Isn't that true? Until it did. And now it does. Right? Because understand what I'm telling you. This When you see that phrase, God created the male and female, black print, white paper, in your Bible, that is God's design. That is his design for humanity. Uh, And anything outside of that, the man and the woman joined in in intimacy, become one flesh for certainly procreative purposes, among other things. Anything outside of that context in terms of identity or sexuality or any of these things, is certainly outside of God's design. Again, I may be preaching to the choir here this morning, but but, but if we're the choir, we are singing in the midst of a world that's warped by sin and and a world that's warped by by a priority on, on man rather than God. Case in point, and I listen, I've read so much on this, I've I've read some of the craziest readings of Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6. I've read, some people think in the Old Testament, Jonathan and David were homosexuals, that Ruth and Naomi were lesbian lovers, that Paul the Apostle was a a repressed, self-hating homosexual, and that the ancient city of Sodom was destroyed because of a lack of hospitality. That's, That's the world in which we live. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of trust. So that we say, God, I'm willing to trust you and your design and your word, or I'm just going to subject the Bible to my own feelings. And I'm going to have it say whatever I want it to say. Follow your heart. I'll tell you, those three words have done more damage in the last 40 years than almost anything else this world could possibly come up with. Follow your heart. Do what you want to do. Do what feels right. You do you rather than following God as as Lord and sovereign creator. God created us male and female. But here's the third thing I want you to see that I I see in this this picture of creation. We are created with a multifaceted constitution. We are created with a multifaceted constitution. Now, when I say constitution, I'm not talking about a a, a federal document. I'm talking about what we're made of. And when you read your Bibles, you see all kinds of words used to describe different aspects of the human composition. Certainly body, the physical body, flesh, skin, bones, muscles, all the rest. We see words like soul and consciousness and mind and spirit and on and on and on. The question is, how do all these things relate to one another? Are we just one kind of big package and, and all these things are bouncing around within us? Or, or, or is there some kind of order to this, this constitution that God has given us as human beings? I believe there is. 
And generally speaking, for Christians, Bible teaching, Bible believing Christians, there, there's one or two schools of thought out there about the, the, the constitution of, of, of the human makeup. One is a dichotomous constitution, and the other is a trichotomous constitution. Uh, the, the dichotomous, of course, the prefix di means what? Two, yes. And, and, and the prefix tri means what? Three, yes, absolutely. Okay. So in other words, for, for the vast majority of Bible-believing people, they see the human constitution as either having two realms or three realms. Okay, let's explain the dichotomous quickly. Dichotomous constitution is, I'm going to put these words on the screen, by the way, so you don't have to try to figure them out right now. Uh, the dichotomous perspective says that human beings are made up of the physical and the non-physical. The physical, of course, again, being your body, your muscle, your organs, your bones, that type of thing, the things that you can touch. The non-physical would be anything from your intellect to your emotions to your spirit, which is the part of you that has communion with God. So you, you have these two categories. A trichotomous constitution divides it up a little more than that, so that you have the physical, again, your body, muscles, and so forth. You have the emotional, that's everything from your feelings and emotions to your will to your intellect, uh, all, all manner of unseen, immaterial things. And then thirdly, you have your spiritual, and that is the part of you that has communion with God. Now, let me... Let me explain this to you in terms of the trichotomous perspective a little more because I will, that's where I land. Uh, I will tell you this is a secondary issue. Remember, our, our theological paradigm at Crossgate, unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, charity in all things. But I will tell you why I believe that we are made as trichotomous beings, okay, in, 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 in threes. Uh, and, and there are several different reasons why. I'll just lay them out for you. First of all, a couple scriptures that unpack these things in terms of three. 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, most people would describe that as the spiritual, emotional, and physical, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, and then also Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, again, soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This verse clearly talks about the soul and the spirit having, having some kind of differences, right? They're, they're not just used totally interchangeably. Okay, so a couple scriptures, that, that's, that's one thing to consider. Here's something else to consider. If you haven't noticed this by now, God likes things in threes. You notice that? I mean, not only is God a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Listen, if God the, the trinity created us, it wasn't just that God the Father created us, but it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it would not surprise me at all if he made us in a triune manner. Right? That there would be three different aspects of who we are. Think about the creation, time and space. God ultimately dwells outside of time and space, but God created time and space in a triune manner. What is time? Past, present, and future, right? All rolls up in a time. How about space, matter, height, width, and depth, three-dimensional? It goes back to the threes over and over again. But here's one of the main reasons why I believe that there are three separate parts of the human constitution. I'm going to put it up as a diagram. Watch this. Okay, physical, emotional, and spiritual. The three realms of the human 
constitution. Plants are physical, but plants don't have emotions, right? They don't have emotions. Animals are physical, and they also have emotions, right? How, how many pet owners do we have out there? All right, we got a lot of pet owners out there. Do your little fur babies have emotions? Yes, of course they do. There, there is an emotional, non-material aspect to animals that, that's not true of plants. But here's why I believe that there's a third dimension to the human constitution that's not true of plants or animals because there's a certain part of humans that's not true of animals and plants, and that is our capacity for communion and relationship with God. And that's only true of human beings. There's nothing else in the creation that's made in the image of God except human beings, and that would be the spiritual. Now again, why is this important? Because this reminds us that we as human beings are not just clever animals who walk upright with, a, with opposing thumbs. There's a whole difference between those made in the image of God and those things that are not made in the image of God. We are not simply higher forms of animals, and there's plenty of people out there that will tell you that's true. I don't believe it, and I would encourage you not to believe it either. There is a total distinction between those made in the image of God and everything else in the creation. By the way, those different words, understand when I say physical, emotional, and spiritual, those are categories, but the words themselves are sometimes used interchangeably in the Bible. For example, let's put the next diagram up there. Okay, Body and flesh, that's obvious. Obviously, that's physical. Soul and spirit are sometimes used interchangeably in the Bible, but as we see, there's also evidence that there's, that there's a clear distinction between the two. The dotted line simply lets you know that these are used interchangeably, and, and for the dichotomous perspective, there is some warrant behind it. The heart and the flesh, the flesh over here, of course, being that part of you that is opposed to God, and every one of us has to wrestle with that, mind, the conscience, the, the, the words tend to be a little more fluid, but I will tell you, I am personally firmly convinced that there are three separate categories, otherwise you don't have a difference between us and the animals. But here's the bottom line. Humanity was made in the image of God. Male and female, God created them, the first two human beings, and then he stepped back and he said, this is very good. And yet, there's a dark side. Because while we were made in the image of God, humanity was also marred by the ravage of sin. Humanity was marred by the by the, by the ravage of sin. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, I told you that the whole Bible can be summed up in three words? The first word is creation. And what was the second word? Catastrophe. Catastrophe. Because into this perfect world, this perfect setting, this sinless, innocent setting, sin came in. Sin came in and ravaged and warped and wrecked everything. Let's go back to the Bible. Genesis 3 now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you 
die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's a sad story. As the man and the woman sinned and rebelled against God. But wait, it gets worse. Look in verse 8, chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And like a typical husband, he tries to pawn it off on his wife. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she, well, it's really your fault, God, if you had not given her to me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. And that's exactly what happened. What a sad story. What a sad, sad story. Now, what what are the impacts of this sin coming into the created order? What, what What are the terrible, tragic impacts of sin? Let me give you four. They're on your handout so you can fill them in. Here's the first one. The first one is this. Three dimensional death became a reality. Three dimensional death became reality. Now let me answer the most obvious question in the room right now with an, with an answer that may not be quite as obvious. Right now some of you are thinking, Pastor, God told Adam and Eve that, that the, on the day that they ate the fruit, they would die. But Pastor, haven't you read in the Bible? Adam lived to be 930 years. What's up with that, Pastor? Excellent question, isn't it? Did he die or didn't he? Okay, let me unpack this with a little illustration that will become very relevant for some of y'all two months from now, or even next month for those of you that simply can't wait. Sometime in the next several weeks, you're probably going to go out and get you a Christmas tree. And the question in your home is going to be, are we going to get a live tree this year? Are we going to go out and get a live? Yeah, yeah, let's get a live tree. And so you're going to go down to the little Christmas tree farm, you're going to pick out a tree, and uh, you're going to put it on the roof of your car, take it home, set it up, and decorate it. And you're going to say, man, I'm so glad we got a live tree. Doesn't it look so good? Wrong. I will tell you, friends, the moment that they chopped that tree from the base out in the woods somewhere, North Arkansas or wherever they get them from, that tree died. I mean, it just, it it died immediately. And yet, it also died progressively because no matter how much water you put in that thing and no matter how well you decorate it, come uh, first, second week of January, it's going to be brown. It's not going to look good. And the best thing you can do is toss it in the lake as a fish attractor, right? I mean, in one sense, the tree died immediately, but in another sense, it died progressively and ultimately as well. Now listen to this. Remember how I talked about the trichotomous nature of the human composition? 
physical, emotional, spiritual. When Adam ate of the fruit and he sinned against God, Adam died immediately in his spirit, progressively in his soul, and ultimately in his body. Immediately, he lost the capacity for that relationship with God. Over time, progressively, his capacity to know and think and feel was warped by sin. And then ultimately, at the age of 930, his body ceased working. Dead is dead. No more heartbeat. No more brain waves. No, no more breath in his lungs. Adam died immediately in his spirit, which is the saddest thing. He died progressively in his, in his emotional and, and, and mental faculties, and he died ultimately in his body. You keep an eye on that because we're going to come back to that at the end of the message. But three-dimensional death became a reality. Here's the second thing. God's image was marred by sin. God's image was marred by sin. When the first man and woman sinned, yes, they were still made in the image of God, but that image was now marred. It was warped. It was wrecked. And that's not to say that we are not also made in the image of God. We, we certainly are. Again, what does the Bible say? Look at this. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is right after the flood. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Adam and Eve sinned. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is a principle going forward, talking about people still being made in the image of God. And then James chapter 3, again for the New Testament, watch this. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness, remember, made in the image and likeness of God, same word, likeness of God. Again, we are made in the image of God still, but that image has been marred by sin. Otherwise, we would not even see these words in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 5, look at this. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The works of the flesh, remember, flesh oftentimes in the New Testament refers to that part of us that is opposed to God. You've got it, I've got it, we've all got it. I don't care how long you've been saved, how long you've been a Christian, you're always going to battle with the flesh until you step into glory. Okay, in the presence of Jesus, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And watch this. I warn you, this is not a threat, this is a promise. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, meaning who just practice them without repentance, without remorse, who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There, there, there is a, a, a terrible, terrible truth about the fact that we are made in the image of God, but that image has been marred. It has been warped by sin. Here's the third thing, the third impact of sin. Humanity was separated from God. Let's, let's conclude chapter 3 of Genesis with this sad culmination. The Lord God drove out the man and woman. He didn't just say, you know, I think I'm getting kind of tired of y'all, so if y'all just pick up sometime, that'd be great. No, he, he drove them out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a, a, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Look at this picture that was drawn probably 150 years ago. Kind of captures the essence of the scene. The angel saying, get out! And a sword 
and the edges of this beautiful existence, this garden, this existence with God, they've now stepped out into the thorns and, and the rocks and the brambles and the dirt and the dust. Sadness indeed. Can I tell you something? God has, I mean, in, ever since this went down, God has not changed his mind on sin. Did you know that? God still judges sin. And, and, and if there's ever a sin that tries to enter into God's presence, he says, get out. Because God is a holy and righteous God, isn't he? We, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And if God did not judge sin, if God somehow said, I'll just overlook that sin, guess what? He would cease to be God. Cease to be the righteous, holy God that he is. Sin separates us from God. God has not changed his mind on this. Look in Revelation 21, verse 27. This is the very end of the Bible. Talking about heaven, described as the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Sin separates from God. It's just that simple. And then here's the last one. The last one is this. Sin infected all humanity through Adam. Sin infected all humanity through Adam. Let me give you a few scriptures. Romans 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, selected verses. In Adam, all die. Not just some, all. All die. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. And we have borne the image of the man of dust. This is one of the reasons why the Bible is so insistent that the first human beings were literally Adam and Eve. That every single human being who has ever lived can trace their lineage ultimately back to these first two people. Because that's how sin infected the entire world. We're sinners by birth, we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. Every single one of us infected with this sin. Now this raises a great question, doesn't it? Because anyone who dies in their sin, apart from forgiveness in Jesus Christ, has nothing but hell in front of them. We're going to talk about that in the last message of this series. The destiny, heaven and hell. Right? But that brings up a great question, a very practical question. Say, Pastor, you're saying that anyone who dies without Christ, without personally receiving Christ, has no hope for eternity. What about babies? What about a child who doesn't even have a chance to be born because of miscarriage or, God help us, abortion? Or, or a small baby or a little toddler? For that matter, Pastor, what about people who are, who are mentally incapacitated from birth? Who don't have a, a, even a, a, a grasp on moral conscience? What happens to them, Pastor? Because, you know, I, I know people who have gone through that. Or some of you have experienced that in your own life. A miscarriage. An aborted baby. A small child died. Or perhaps a, a brother or sister of yours or someone close to you was born with, a, with, with, with an abnormality that, that, that prevents them from having moral consciousness. What happens to those people when they die, Pastor? Well, again, my heart goes out to anybody who has had to experience that in this life. But because it is such an emotionally charged topic, 
it's all the more important that we ask, what does the Bible say? Because otherwise, we could talk ourselves into believing almost anything, right? I mean, just, I'm going to follow my feelings, follow my heart on this. So let, let's see what the Bible has to say about what happens to, to young babies and, 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 and miscarriage child. Okay, here you go. First passage, Numbers 14. The backstory here, of course, is that God's people came out of Egypt, and God, his intention was to take them directly to the promised land. I mean, do not pass, go, do not collect $200, just go straight to the promised land. But because of their disobedience, their rebellion, their sin, God said, fine, I'm going to have you all do circles in the wilderness for 40 years until your generation dies out, you disobedient, foolish people, and then the next generation, I'll take them into the promised land. Now, this is some specific things that God said about that. The Lord told Moses and Aaron to say to the people, your dead, these are the disobedient people, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Next slide. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. Of course, Caleb and Joshua were the two people who were like, God, you are our ride or die. We're in with you 110%. He said they can come in. The rest of you, forget it. But your little ones, okay, here we go. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. In other words, God says, those little ones, when you guys were blowing me off and just completely rebelling against me, the tiny little children that were in your midst that didn't know the difference and didn't even have the moral comprehension to know what was going on, they're going to go into the promised land. But you're not, because you knew better. So he makes a distinction here. This is powerful. This is, this is very, very powerful, I think, that God makes this distinction here. Okay, second passage, Isaiah chapter 7. Famous for the prophecy about Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, but it's the secondary thing that we want to focus on. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Okay? But before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So the original prophecy was talking about a baby being born in the days of the Old Testament when Israel was being threatened, not unlike today, they were being threatened with annihilation, and, uh, and he basically said, don't worry, I've got your back. Before this little baby who was born even knows the difference between good and evil, I'm going to deliver you. But you see the distinction, that's the point. The point that God makes a distinction between someone who knows the difference between good and evil and has moral consciousness and someone who doesn't. Now here's the last one. Talking about King David. 2 Samuel 12. Again, we, most of us know the story. David was messing around with another man's wife. He ended up having that man killed. And a baby was born from that illicit, immoral relationship. And the baby got sick. And this is what was taking place. David was absolutely torn up about it, that the baby was very sick, and this is what went down. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. Okay, so now the baby has died. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servants said to him, 
What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. What does that say to you? That tells me that David fully expected to see that baby in heaven someday. He couldn't bring the baby back to him. It would be impossible to do that. But David fully expected to see his child in heaven someday. Why? Isn't it obvious? that The child didn't even know the difference between good and evil. Had no moral consciousness. And so in that sense, yes, the child was a sinner. But you can't hold a child responsible for something they didn't even know or understand. You say, Pastor, is this, is this what people call the age of accountability? I believe it is, but I, I tend to not to use the phrase age of accountability because we don't know what the age is. It's not like for every child that's six years old or five years old or seven years old. But every child will eventually pass, some sooner than others. Every child will eventually pass from a time when they don't know the difference between right and wrong to when they truly understand the impact and effects of sin. Now that's just that's one question that arises in a message like that. There's so many others. I've, I've shared with you before in this series that Pastor Keith and I are devoting our, our podcast, our weekly podcast, More and Better Disciples podcast, we're devoting that to following up each message in this series, asking some of the yeah buts and the whatabouts and the frequently asked questions. Uh, we've got a lot to cover this week, don't we? I mean, we've got to talk about, well, where did sin come from? And what, is, what does it mean to be totally depraved? And why did, why did these people live so long back in those days anyway? 930 years? What was going on with that, Pastor? Among other things, such as, what about the guy on the island? I mean, the, the, the guy on the island, somewhere in the middle of the ocean, he lives, he dies, he's never heard the name of Jesus, ever. What happens to him? Is he a sinner? Does God hold him accountable? We're going to talk about that. I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to them, go back and listen to our podcast and certainly check out the one this week. We'll launch it on our social media on Thursday as well as on our website because there's a lot of questions, a lot of questions about what we're talking about, and I am more than happy to answer any and all. If there's any that I don't answer on the podcast and it's one that's really burning in your heart, reach out to me. I will be happy to talk with you about it. Now, let's go back to what happened to Adam. Remember what I said about Adam? At, when Adam sinned, he died immediately in his spirit. He died progressively in his soul, and he died ultimately in his body. Now, I want you to see what God does through Jesus Christ. Okay? What, what God does when a man or woman, boy or girl, receives Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, receives forgiveness of sins, receives a brand new life, and a promise to be in heaven someday. Here's what happens. When you receive Jesus Christ, because without Christ, you're dead in your sins. But when you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, you immediately receive life in your spirit. You progressively, that's justification, you receive life progressively in your soul. That's called sanctification. And one day, you'll be transformed with a resurrected body. That's called glorification. You're made alive immediately in your spirit, progressively in your soul, and ultimately in your body. But let me ask you this question as we close out this service. Are you saved? 
I ask this question every week. Why? Because every week we have people in our church attending, visiting. Maybe you've been here a long time. You've never trusted Jesus Christ personally and powerfully for salvation. Are you saved? Do you know with absolute certainty that Jesus is your Savior? Do you know with absolute certainty that if you died today, you'd be in heaven with Christ? If not, this is the day to get your salvation settled. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.